All right. Welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have Lewis Gordon. He's a professor and head of the Department of Philosophy at UConn Stores. He's the honorary president of the Global Center for Advanced Studies and chair of the Committee on Public Philosophy for the American Philosophical Associations. Association. His books include Freedom, Justice, and Decolonization, and his new book, uh, Fear of Black Consciousness, which was just published on January 11th, 2022. Welcome, Lewis. Thank you. Thank you both. I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely. We are so happy to have you on. And so your book begins with a really great parable. And I love beginning our podcast with either parables or personal stories, because I feel like they really captured the audience. And so your book begins with the parable of the Anglican minister. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that means? <laughs> oh, certainly. Yeah. This is, a, this is a story that's been told and retold. And as you could probably guess, each of us add a little something to it. Mm -hmm. But it's a story about miscommunication and power. Right. And of course, when you say the Anglican school, the story takes place in the Caribbean. I just, uh, the story actually came from Trinidad, but I just simply say a Caribbean island. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically the, the, Angli the, the Anglican minister goes to inspect a school. And as he's going in to inspect a school, the little boy is running, you know, a little late. And, uh, you know, you could imagine this is a, a white man from England and there's a little black boy, perhaps Afro East Indian since it's Trinidad. Mm -hmm. And as he's running up to the school, the uh, inspector stops him and says, you know, young man, could you tell me who knocked down the walls of Jericho? And you can imagine this poor little boy, you know, the little boy just basically says, uh, not me. <laughs> you know. And then the story just continues from there because the guy's outraged and he goes through the school and gets worse and worse. Because the story is hinting on, of course, how you approach people. You have to think seriously about your social relation to them, etc. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people can be put in a situation to say something that makes sense given the context, but is absolutely absurd and could be offending, etc. Mm -hmm. But of course, it is a parable because it's also a parable about the different worlds through which people need to talk about difficult issues. And in this case, it's the convergence of colonialism, racism, um, you know, uh, issues of language, uh, all kinds of complicated issues of generation, age, etc. And as they unfold, the story has consequences because this man is inspecting the school. Right. <laughs> and in the story I tell in the book, it, it eventually gets all the way up to public where, you know, you know, buildings and waterworks and the whole thing just goes absurd but this is the thing we forget sometimes that we human beings are always living amidst the absurd and we're it's up to us always to try to build meaning and while we're trying to build meaning although there is absurdity we also face truth truth and reality but we often impose falsehoods onto reality, because we often, human beings, prefer pleasing falsehoods than displeasing truths. Right. And this underlying displeasing truth in the parable, of course, is the power relation at work, where what he's really inspecting the school for, as a representative of the empire, is, I, is also their ongoing 
miseducation, the production of those people into becoming proper colonial subjects. But of course, this is something we're familiar with also in societies with slavery. Because again, so-called proper education for the enslaved is to make them at home with their enslavement. But that is obscene. So ultimately, the, the, the question at hand is to bring out both the absurdity, but also the obscenity of trying to build societies that would make people at home with their degradation, their dehumanization, their oppression. Right. And what was so striking about the story, I remember, is thinking, uh, how is it that this one person, this one, uh, I guess, you know, sort of bureaucrat, right, that he was the only one who found any of this to be absurd. So the headmaster didn't seem to have found it absurd. The people that he, uh, I guess, in the sort of bureaucratic system that he called upon, I think it was he ended up getting all the way up to the general, to the (laughs) secretary general, whoever. And then he is like, you know, and they transferred him over to like, you know, uh, what's it called? What was it? Water? Building a waterworks. Building a waterworks, right? Right. So it's like, how? How do, how do I guess in a culture that's, that's seemingly so rational, right? And so obsessed with the enlightenment, how do we create systems that like are so absurd literally to just anybody observing them? Yeah. Well, well, part of it is the ongoing, the underlying theme, not only in, in this book, but in all of my writings mm-hmm. is, is what happens when human beings fail to understand that we are in a human situation. You see? And this failure, we're constantly trying to make human beings non-human. It's an obsession of our species. There are people, I mean, this is one of the, 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 the subtexts, of course, of the absolutely brilliant text by Mary Shelley, right? Frankenstein. Right. But, but, but it goes before Frankenstein. You see it in ancient myths. You could see it in stories of Daedalus. You could find it in ancient East African stories. And it's, it is an, it's an effort to try to fix us, to get us to be a perfect, pure thing. The problem is because we're relationships, we human beings are always transcending being things. And some of us, of course, we want to be things because we see that as safer, Mm. you see? So for instance, there's a whole area of philosophical philosophy of language, Mm -hmm. where there's an obsession to try to make language fixed. But one of the things that I, not only me, but many others point out, more from the phenomenological tradition, is that, but also psychoanalysts know this too, that language is not a thing. We don't hold, we don't have language the way we can put something in our pocket. Mm-hmm. We actually live language. We relate to it. We play with it. We, mm-hmm. even, when we, even when we have a book, we find out when we read a book over and over, it manifests language in different ways. Mm-hmm. And that's because every encounter we have, it is actually never one individual like a god throwing pronouncements on reality and making it real. It is actually the intersubjective co-production of meaning that enables us actually to have a living relationship to language. And so the absurdity comes in because the problematic view of not only language, but of the human world, is as if you can just have what I call the logic of contraries, something that's universally positive imposed on reality. End of story. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, implicit and universally positive is there's there are all the things that are not contained within that domain. And that's the universally negative. Two universals separate. Right. Well, that's the logic not only of colonialism, but it's the language of also when we're dealing with people who um, think man in a Manichaean way, black and white, you know, it's all, or people who are egotistical. It's all about me, you know, or, or we have a good term for that. People who are full of themselves. If you're full of yourself, you're so you're universally positive. No, nothing can enter. So there are all of those things. But the absurdity, of course, is the moment you could communicate and realize anything, you have contradicted that universality. You're now dealing with something that has particularized it. And the world, now you have to reach out into the unknown, the unpredictable, the uncertain. And those kinds of circumstances, they are part of what leads to these two directions. One direction, I characterize at a certain point in my recent book as um, uh, an, um, an ongoing version of, you know, when you're a kid and you're asleep and you wake up for a second, it looks like somebody's in your room. Mm-hmm. It really is funny, isn't it, that we, we, we cover our head with a blanket. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know I mean? what, what is the boogeyman supposed to do? Oh, man, that damn blanket. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, good. Always have something up their sleeve. Mm-hmm. You know, now, now I got to go back in the closet and wait <laughs> till maybe tomorrow night. Right. But, mm-hmm. but, but there are so many versions of the blanket. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it in political terms uh, in a lot of the absurdities of what has not only a, a transpired over since 2016 with the Trump administration, but we're seeing th- what happens afterward. There are people who simply lie because in a way, covering your head with a blanket is a lie, mm-hmm. but it's a special lie. It's a lie to the self because deep down, you know, a blanket's not going to keep you from a monster. Mm-hmm. So you have to make yourself believe something you don't really believe. And, and that's what I call bad faith. And so there, the, the bad faith situation, the flight from a displeasing falsehood into the arms of a pleasing, I'm sorry, yeah, from a displeasing, I'm sorry, the flight from a displeasing truth mm-hmm. into the arms of a pleasing falsehood. That's what bad faith is. Um, we see that all around us. We see that all around us. And a lot of what um, the the promise, so to speak, of of colonialism embedded with a false history about even the Enlightenment. And I could talk a little about that shortly. But Mm -hmm. when you bring all those elements together, uh, it creates a world in which not only those who impose those falsehoods need to believe those falsehoods, but it is part of a survival mechanism for some of the people on whom they're imposed. Because think about it. If you're going to be humiliated, tortured, you know, go through all kinds of suffering, the idea that it's for naught, it's for something absurd, really is disheartening. So paradoxically, sometimes even dominated people want to believe the lies of the dominated. Because if they were true, then it means in some way you may deserve it, then deep down, it means the world at a metaphysical level, reality, is ultimately right. 
but that is part of the problem you see we if we if you are critical of that and take on that falsehood now you see the truth so to speak you are going to face profound levels of responsibility because it means if that entire system is built on a falsehood if that system and it's not and i shouldn't say entire because for things to work there has to be elements of truth in them mm-hmm. you see so so it's not the like the enlightenment is a big lie there are many truths in the enlightenment yeah. what the falsehood of the enlightenment is is one well rather there's several falsehoods so the first one that the enlightenment sprung willy-nilly out of the minds of uniquely enlightened people mm-hmm. two that it could only have come out of those people which means the rest of the world is in darkness three that ultimately the organization of what of the world as it proposes it can be absolute and then finally four this notion that somehow the ideas of the enlightenment are isomorphic or in a one to one relationship with all of reality mm-hmm. so it offers reality as a closed system mm-hmm. that we just simply have to have the right language to map onto that system mm-hmm. so we start you know i mean with the first um well first of all um no uh human beings have actually had conceptions of light uh all the way back from plato's allegory of the cave even before that when we go and look at ancient east african understandings of the construction of reality through opposing forces of chaos and order mm-hmm. if you look at um the myths of um Horus Isis there are many others uh, you could see this second uh signs didn't begin with the enlightenment uh there are many societies that have had ideas about how we deal with reality with uh, and not only ideas of how we deal with reality but um languages that were rich with different ways of talking about reality mm-hmm. uh for instance colonial languages are noun based uh english used to be more verb based but with the rise of uh british colonialism uh the language of property and possession began to dominate to the point where uh it's estimated that english shifted into a language that becomes 70% nouns and 30% verbs <laughs> it it it's the old version was the was the reverse it was more verbs mm-hmm. than nouns Right, where property was less important. Correct. Right. Uh, but but also uh, in 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 societies, uh, a lot of us again, uh, it turns out paradoxically, what we call the Enlightenment also had within in it a form of unenlightenment, a form of covering over. You see how the bad faith part works there, <laughs> Be- because for instance, in antiquity and throughout the ages, there have always been women who do. works of science in fact in ancient east africa 
the the uh, the language the la- the language of Medunetta, as an example, was so vast that it had many words for wisdom and for what we call science. I often ask students, can you give me more than three words for wisdom? And they're, they're like, oh, well, there's wisdom. There's wisdom. <laughs> you know? Wisdom, knowledge, and information. They might get to sage, you know, sagacity. <laughs> yeah. But I say, well, you know, a lot of ancient languages, there were 36 words just wow. for wisdom alone. Or if you talk about science, and then and there are nuanced ones between science and wisdom and other things. Mm-hmm. And I would talk about... Uh, for instance, uh, if you think of the rec from Reket, from which you get, um, um, by the time of the Romans, the, the Romans transformed the ancient um, Kemet word, because by then, with Greek, with the, the Greek-speaking language and the Roman languages, they changed the area to Egypt. Mm-hmm. But, but the Reks became, uh, were, were communities of women dedicated to understanding reality. In other words, science. Mm-hmm. But when they say women, they were not always anatomically women. So the idea, but you see my point, it means that um, there was nothing at all within that society that took the notion that, that something in women would block them from being scientists. Right. right. And in fact, a lot of uh, contemporary... Um, archaeological study of the history of science and medicine, uh, uh, they're revealing the obvious. It made, it made a lot of sense that the earliest scientists and mathematicians were female because, well, first of all, there are, a lot of, there are so many things linked to the lives of women that have to do with numbers. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, I mean, it, it, anybody just stop to reflect for a second. And it turns out, even when we think of art, you know, we think of those very ancient, what we call cave paintings. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what most people, again, the images of, you know, some dude going in and painting the walls. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that uh, three quarters of those paintings, 75% were done by women. Mm-hmm. So you could see my point about, uh, and it makes a lot of sense, because the moment you think that they're done by women, you begin to think of the paintings differently. Mm-hmm. When people thought they were done by dudes, they thought it's, oh, it's a hunter trying to capture the spirit of the animal. But if you think it's done by women, then you begin to say, oh, wait a minute, they were pedagogical. (laughs) (laughs) If if you think today, we have children's books. We have books for, you know, women were early teachers. Mm -hmm. There are lots of things that we think about. So if 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 I go, I can go through all kinds of examples because I do work on the history of medicine and science, but... But if we come to it, then the, there's, it's not that what was being thought through in the Enlightenment was intrinsically false. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember there are two Enlightenments, right? There's the Scottish Enlightenment, right, which is a little later, the Germanic ones. And they're earlier French, the more, the more right out of the Renaissance ro- Romance languages Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. But the, the elements, the spirit of trying to look into science, the, era, the spirit of trying to understand the world, that, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. What's wrong is then to tag onto it a kind of theodicy and a kind of logic that creates the notion that only certain kinds of human beings can do it. Right. That's weird because it means you won't listen 
to others who may be sources of different ideas, or when they do bring the ideas, you simply steal it and rewrite it to match the ideological presupposition that only you can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, one, a, a simple exercise, for instance, is to think about the inventions, the ideas that most people think of as being done by males or people who are white. Mm-hmm. And they think that because they think it must be. But I usually say, you know, if you were to take bl- black people out of history or if you were to take certain women out of history, your morning would be very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you and I wouldn't be speaking right now, or we might have eventually, but uh, but the algorithm for the computer was from Ada Lovelace. That was from a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. The development for wireless technology was from... And a Hollywood Hattie, actress. Hattie Lamar. Hattie Lamar. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was a U.S. secret weapon. Yep. Yeah. And, and did, uh, you know, did, you, did you know that they actually never paid her? No. I know. Yeah. What's, yeah. What was wild, too, is just she just. Well, the thing, you know, one of the, again, and here, here, here are one of the profound ideological falsehoods, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, the number of papers I've received from students who would say, without competition and so forth, there will be innovation. Mm-hmm. And I have to explain to them that is absolutely false. Um, uh, it's without curiosity and wonder. Mm-hmm. Most of the great innovations in history were not done through people trying to compete with each other and kill each other. They, they were done through actually people developing the joy of learning and wonder. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah there's so many. There people, and wa- and I mean, want, wanting to better communities too. Like uh, the Hedy Lamar story is really like prominent here, right? Because that's what she wanted to do because it was World War II at the time. And they were inter- the Germans were intercepting United States like messages, you know, these crypto messages. And so she was like, oh, I want to help you guys, right? I want to be a part of the war effort. I can't be, obviously go to war. Yeah, she was a woman at the time. And she's like, let me now use my intellect to help you. And right? she felt like she was a significant part of the effort. Right, it was Absolutely. about collaboration, not Absolutely. competition. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And if you think about the anti-Semitism of the time, she was Jewish. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. This Jewish woman was transforming stuff that connect to us right now. Mm-hmm. Or or the fact we think about Latimer developing the filament for the light bulb, you know, it wasn't Edison. Edison owned the company. Mm-hmm. And uh, or we think about the cotton gin. Again, it wasn't, it was a, it was an enslaved individual, someone uh, owned by Eli Whitney, but enslaved people couldn't own patents. Mm-hmm. And we think there's so many things. Now, it's not to say, again, you know, it's not to say there weren't people who were white or male and so forth inventing things. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that we need to learn is that every human being, every community of human beings have the capacity, the creative capacity to make innovation and to contribute. And when we have systems that say we'll close off access opportunities, that we'll, or we won't listen just because somebody is anatomically female or someone's hue is brown. We're committing a disservice to truth, to reality, to our species. And, and sometimes the system of competition we develop, you know, we fail to remember, to, to remember that many people, when they compete, fight dirty. Sorry, right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they want to win at all costs. Right now, we're seeing people fight dirty. There's a pandemic. Humanity needs to have access, global access. And what governments set the conditions to create, unfortunately, was then captured by a logic of privatization that for the sake of profit is holding resources away from people globally. Mm 
And as long as this virus is able to have hosts, I'm talking about the novel coronavirus, it can mutate. And so, in effect, the very logic, right, of, of a very skewed notion of competition is producing precarity, it's creating vulnerability, and it is actually the social or the antisocial, if we will, condition of transforming what could have been a very minor forest illness into a pandemic. So we have a pandemic also at the level of social illness, of an absurd commitment to organizing power in the world in a way that actually is jeopardizing not only the future of our species, but has also led to the extinction that of so many others at a rate of 600 extinctions a year. That is catastrophic. But yes, <laughs> the thing is, one, one of the cool thing to think about, too, is, uh, you know, um, a lot of people don't even realize that point I said even about gender. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, some people, when they hear the word feminist science, they're like, oh, there's this identity politics thing, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, it's funny. The word science come from the word uh, skira. Mm-hmm. And skira, when you look at it, actually, if you go and look at, look at its history, it's the Latinization of an e, you know, of a East African word, mm-hmm. and the East African word from Meruneta was karate. Mm-hmm. Now, what is karate? Karate were the pharaonic guards. Mm-hmm. The guards would march in a column and split. Mm-hmm. So the word means to split, mm-hmm. and the adoption into Latin, uh, the pronunciation, because in the different languages, today we have a very economized version of the languages, mm-hmm. but the earlier languages had many consonants and nouns that today many of us don't bother to pronounce. Mm-hmm. And so those of us who are multilingual um, can hear things others can't. For instance, I as a child, because of the, the multiraciality of my family, one of my early languages was Cantonese because my grandmother's, my paternal grandmother is Chinese from Guangdong, China. Uh, but also my family were um, um, East African and West Asian Jews. Mm-hmm. So there was, you know, um, um, the varieties of, of languages that were spoken in 19th century from Palestine. Mm-hmm. Uh, because a lot of people don't know the Hebrew of Israel today is modern Hebrew. That's not the ancient Hebrew. And then there was Tamil, and then, of course, the African languages from Igbo to Yoruba to Patwa and Jamaica. So I could hear sounds a lot of other people can. Mm-hmm. So the Latin, the Romans, the way they pronounced karute was karute. They put a slight into it. Mm-hmm. And so it became skira, from which you get the word schism, to split. Mm-hmm. And, of course, if you look at the, the, the founding organization of the way they were looking at nature, and nature has the word natal in it, birth. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, again, don't realize. We just say, is it nature? Is it natural? I'm a natural scientist. But the underlying metaphor for nature was biological. It was about natality, the giving birth. So you already see the feminine element there. Mm-hmm. So in Latin, then, giving birth, uh, it meant like to split, to mm-hmm. create more. Mm-hmm. And so it became, skira became the etymological roots of both sex which leads to creating more, mm-hmm. and science. So what's interesting, 
is that when we have a very uh, male-centered view of science, we the irony is that the origin of science is feminine. Mm-hmm. And so at least at the etymological level, what uh, the feminist scientists are arguing about is true, but you could see this bad faith part comes back from the Enlightenment moment of covering over its feminine roots by asserting its legitimacy in terms of masculine practice. And this, this, of course, mentality is connected to a lot of other mentalities of turning away from the relationship we have with others, with reality. And that's because ultimately, the way I talked about language earlier, we, we talk about freedom with others, and we also talk about reality, the scary truth about reality is it's always bigger than we are. Right. And, it, it's sort of, and it's sort of more encompassing than we kind of give a credit for. And it's like, what, so what I really love about your work is you kind of go away from that, you know, Manichaean black and white thinking where you have, you know, something that Alan and I frequently talk about on our podcast, maybe sort of about competition as opposed to collaboration, where there's this sort of sense that, you know, we have like the dominant group and then everybody else, right? The others don't really matter. The histories of the dominant group, right? Sort of their perspectives, their thoughts, these are the things that we take into consideration and we leave everything on the kind of on the roadside because it's not as important and so you tell this really great story and I know you told it multiple times in your book you told it on your TEDx talk which I really appreciate and I hope that we could focus on it was actually the story of Frederick Douglass's mother and how he came to the understanding of what love is and what love is supposed to be right it's sort of a well I don't want to go on about it can you tell us the story sure as we know during the period of enslavement Children born uh, to an enslaved mother were separated from the mother. And the re- one of the reasons the, the, the system said enslaved mother, in other words, you were born to a free mother, you're free, um, is to create more enslaved people, for people locked in bondage. And also quite often the enslaved were children of the enslavers, of the masters. Yeah. So Harriet Bailey is the name of uh, the woman I talked about. And Harriet Bailey, she was, uh, she had a child. It was the masters. The child was separated from her at birth and she was sent off to another plantation. The child was sent to, uh, and there's always an elderly woman whose job it is to take care of the babies, et cetera. And, mm-hmm to try to get the, 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 the children to a certain point where they can be put into formal, actual, you know, working, uh, laboring, enslaved on the fields. So several years later, the child, Frederick Bailey, was brought to the master, the, the enslaver's home. Uh, and the thing about enslaved people, a lot of people don't understand that just a little little pause for a second. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a lot of stereotypes about how we look at enslaved people, but I always point out the enslaved people were skilled labor. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of, you know, there are stereotypes of Africa to hide the fact that a lot of people who brought over were very knowledgeable. And the knowledge they brought is one of the reasons why plantations that tended to have people directly from Africa tended to prosper because these people were literate. They brought skill sets, etc. So anyway, 
they also develop complex systems of communicating information. There's, there's, there, right? There's, um, uh, there, there's a lot of literature on this. Uh, Julia Scott wrote a wonderful book on this, the way enslaved people carry news. So the news, so to speak, uh, went 12 miles away to a plantation where it turned out Harriet Bailey was in was an, in a field slave. She was working in the fields. And she found out that this child, her child, uh, who is now about six going on seven, maybe it was seven at this point, was on a plantation 12 miles away. So what this woman did after she worked all day in the fields and had barely enough food was to walk the 12 miles to go see that child. Now, what I usually, when I tell this story, I usually with my students bring up, you know, it's very difficult to explain to your child when you're not around. If you're a motherless child, you're pissed off at your mother. You think your mother doesn't love you. Uh, you know, it, people say your mother's an enslaved person, but how is a child to understand this? Right. A, a child doesn't see the father. It's just rumored who the father is. So the child experiences abandonment. And this is, this, you know, there are many examples of this. Even if you, you know, children whose father or mother had to get three jobs for the family to work, all the child sees is you're not home. So the child will believe that the child is unloved. And so suddenly there's this woman showing up after dusk, right? It's, now, it's, it's in the evening. She comes, she spends time with you. She says she's, she's your mother. She shares her little bits of scraps because you're not even being fed. A lot of people don't know how absurd the rations were for enslaved people. She, that means she's hungry. She's giving what little bit she has. She would lie down with you. She, would, she defended him one day against a cook who was, you know, trying to beat him. And she does this for six months, and then she dies. Now, the, um, the, I asked the students, you know, what would you say about the story at this point? And the students, well, the first part they understood, you would say, my mother doesn't love, I'm unloved. But now the second point in the story, you can't say there isn't someone who doesn't love you. But here's where it becomes very tricky. Because you see, the society basically says an enslaved person is only valuable the extent to which the master or the enslaved or the owner, right, values that property. So you're a commodity. You're only of economic value. And so suddenly there's this other value called love. Someone loves you. What, what's up with that? I mean, this is, he's, he's not giving this woman anything. She didn't take, she gave him, hmm. you know? And we already know that this child, um, Frederick Bailey, eventually uh, uh, learns to read, escape, uh, changes his name to Frederick Douglass. He goes out there, he becomes abolitionist. He becomes one of the greatest intellectuals of the 19th century. The list goes on and on, ambassador to Haiti, blah, blah, blah. Hmm. So at first, so we see the power of love there. But 
And this is the crucial point. I often say to the students, yeah, but he did all these cool things. But there are other people who may have also been loved. I mean, he could have been uppity, stereotypical. You know, he could have said, yo, y'all aren't loved, but I'm a loved slave. <laughs> I'm better than you all. And, and the fact that he was light-skinned, he's a mulatto, right? Mm. He could say, and I'm light-skinned, I'm better than you all. You know, y'all go, you know, he could have been full of himself. Mm -hmm. However, what is powerful about this story is, and this is the point that's crucial. I, I say this uh, not only in the book but, and in the TED Talk, but I say this to my students and we talk about it. The story is not really about Frederick Douglass. And they're like, huh? I said, no, 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 no. I mean, we have, you know, we, have, we know who Frederick Douglass is, Black History Month, he was born in February, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. This story is about Harriet Bailey. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, what do you mean? Well, you see, if Frederick Douglass simply got full of himself and said, I'm loved and so forth, then he could walk out as a narcissist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He, could, he could just be, you know, he could just be full of himself. He, sh he could have escaped from slavery, found himself somewhere, make some money, live that high life, and, and just be in fugitivity the rest of his life. And, you know, take advantage of that. Yeah. However, the crucial part of the story was that everything in the society told him that the love he was receiving was not valuable. To be loved by an enslaved woman was to be loved by a piece of property who lacked the capacity to bring value to the world, except through the labor she offered in the fields. The crucial thing was for him to value being valued by someone a society considered lack, uh, unworthy, someone without value. The moment he valued her, it can transform his relationship to his fellow enslaved people and to anybody else who is suffering from injustice oppression, dehumanization. And it's that valuing, valuing her love is why he stepped out of fugitivity, risked being thrown back into enslavement, became an abolitionist. He was eventually manumitted and joined not only the struggle against slavery, but the struggle against the struggle for suffrage. He joined the women's rights struggle. He joined every kind of struggle against dehumanization. And that is what transformed him then into this opened up the understanding of a more complex kind of love. I call it radical love mm -hmm. because it's the love for the value of those who don't have to give you anything. You don't even have to know them. They could be radically different from you. And he learned that love from this woman because she, his mother, died never knowing if he loved her. It didn't matter to her whether he would love her. She gave that love because she was affirm affirming his value, period. And the, I say her name, Harriet Bailey, those who are listening to this podcast will now know her name mm -hmm. 
But she died with no knowledge that her actions were producing Frederick Douglass. <laughs> and Frederick Douglass died not knowing the many people who are affected by his actions. And so it struck me that there's so many people who are unnamed, whose actions, who died not knowing their actions mattered, mm. but their actions did. Because you and I, all of us know right now that we wouldn't be here, but for the actions of those people who preceded us. And although there are those who tried to hurt them, stop them, there are people who are on the wrong side of history. The point is that there were sufficient numbers of those on the right side of history for there to be a world in which the three of us could be speaking right now. Mm -hmm. And so this includes not only uh, what now can be interpreted as heroic actions, but Harry Bailey had no interest in our actions being heroic. Mm -hmm. There were actions based on radical love. But I'm sure in your families, the people who preceded you, it may have been your parents. You don't, we don't know. There are many people who have been a school teacher. Mm -hmm. It could have been an aunt, an uncle, who knows? But the point is, we live in a world in which, well, not even, I don't even say in a world, just the reality of the human world is that actions matter. Mm -hmm. Fanon basically says society, unlike biochemical processes, require human actions mm -hmm. for it to exist. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a reminder that we, we build a society, we build the actions, we're the ones who make things happen. And we right now face a future of people we will never meet, we will never know, they will be anonymous. But that ultimately is the point. The point is, if we think through, if we think through all the way through what it is to do a political act, all political actions affect the anonymous. There's no way for our politicians or legislators to know everybody. Mm -hmm. But similarly, the future. And if our actions are based on a commitment, a commitment like that woman's commitment to see that child, a commitment for future generations to be able to live their lives with dignity and freedom and respect, then they would look back at our actions, our generation's actions, and look back with thanks instead of regret. Just like we can look back to Harriet Bailey with thanks instead of regret. And it's rather striking, you know, in Frederick Douglass's three reflections on his life, uh, you know, the narrative of Frederick Douglass, my bondage, my freedom, and then the life and times of Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. The first one, he lied. He claimed he didn't know his mother and, you know, there, you know, there's no sense of bonds or affection. Uh, he did that because the Garrisonians wanted to show the horrors of slavery that will alienate mother from child, you know. The, by bondage, my freedom, he began to talk more about his mother. And I remember when I read the narrative, I said, he's lying. That isn't true. That ain't true. Uh, there, there's got to be more going on. I can't imagine the way certain things are to say he only saw her maybe once or twice and had no connection. And then finally, in my bondage, my freedom, he moved her up to the third page of the text. So early on, 
<laughs> and he go and 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 before I'd read it, I'd hypothesized the very argument I just gave. But when I read it, finally, when I got the life and times of Frederick Douglass, there it was, and he gave the exact same analysis I gave. <laughs> To the letter, he talked about what she was doing, that he would have hated his mother, but he realized what she, what, what she was bringing to what she brought him love. Mm -hmm. She brought him a commitment, right, to understand things greater than himself. And he also talked about the value of valuing somebody who the society was treated as um, incapable of giving value. And I was thinking, my God, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. And so, so what I'm arguing here is not Lewis Gordon's argument. It's Frederick Douglass's argument. And I'm sure many enslaved people, it's the, the argument the children of Harriet Jacobs would have. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something out of Julia Cooper. No, these are all people who were born in, in enslavement. Uh, these are stories you could find in Curacao with the stories of Tula. You could find it with the Sharp Rebellion in Jamaica. You could find it in Brazil, all over the place. Mm -hmm. But not only there, I should like to add, this is a story you could also find that, unfortunately, I wish more people would understand. It's a story among the Welsh and the Irish mm -hmm. who were brought to this country, uh, many of whom through indentured enslavement. And I could give you a, a story just very quickly. I don't talk about it much in this book, but elsewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people don't realize the story of Mary uh, Walsh. And she was called Walsh she, because uh, Welsh was another way of just talking about slaves. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Gaelic people were, uh, were, were, made, were, were enslaved. And she was enslaved for supposedly stealing milk. Uh, the cow had kicked over the milk <laughs> when she was, you know, milking the cow. Mm -hmm. And she was tried and sentenced to seven years of indentured servitude in Maryland. Wow. Right? From England. So... When she, uh, um, when she, after the seven years, and, and you know, enslaved people uh, often had to work to get extra stuff for food, etc. right? So this is an Irish, Welsh, you know, enslaved woman, right? Mm -hmm. But today's language, white. At that time, the whiteness, as we understand, was being made, you see? Mm -hmm. uh, when she was uh, finally released of her, or indentured servitude. She had managed through doing little extra labor to save up enough money to get a farm, okay? Now, this woman then went and purchased two African men. And she went uh, to her farm uh, with them and her farm prospered. She married one of the African men, is, 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 right? And she had a daughter. Now, again, they were African men. And a lot of people don't realize that the conditions, the, the, the meteorological conditions, the, the environmental conditions in North America and Central America are more like Africa, mm -hmm. uh, parts of Africa. So the kind of the, the techniques for agriculture developed in Africa were immediately more useful here. The kinds that are developed in, in England and certain parts, that part of Europe, they're fed from waters from the Gulf of Mexico. So they get a lot of precipitation. So farming was very different there. So these farms and other techniques, medicine, et cetera. So when her daughter inherited the farm, because remember her daughter was now born free, mm -hmm. right? She went and purchased 
African men <laughs> and married one. Wow. So again, you could see even the way we think about race and interracial relationship stuff. We're talking about a very different period, right? Mm-hmm. This right in the 18th century, this woman now, and it made absolute people say, well, why would this white woman, you know, to do this, but really think about it. If she had married a white man, he would have had her property. <laughs> this woman learned her lesson, mm-hmm. right? This is a profoundly, you see how race and gender come in here. Mm-hmm. This woman knew if she was to retain, because she went through slavery herself. Mm-hmm. If she married a white man, she would, lo- she would lose her property. Right. So she married an enslaved man. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, and where is he to go? I mean, even when he's manumitted, right? I mean, because there were people also re-enslaving manumitted Black people at this point. Mm-hmm. So her daughter, but her daughter had a son. And the man she had the son with, his name was, was Banneke. And the son now uh, had a different story, but she named the son Benjamin. And you see where this is going. Benjamin Banneke's name was eventually changed to Benjamin Banneker. Mm-hmm. One of the, the most famous invention, inventors mm-hmm. in American history. The man who designed Washington, D.C., the man with the almanac, the, wow. this great scientist. This is his story, mm-hmm. his wow. family story. It's just that he fell in love with a woman who was enslaved, a black woman. And he went to try to purchase her so he could manumit her into freedom. But the master had her as a concubine, the enslaver, and for spite refused to sell her to Benjamin. And that's one of the reasons why he was genuinely in love with this woman. He never married. He never, wow. yeah, it was a, it's a tragic story. But, um, but there are other elements of the story. But here's the point in the story. As I'm telling these stories, you could see the complexity of the lives of people of the past. But similarly, Molly, Molly Walsh, I'm sorry, I said Mary, but Molly Walsh was her name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Her story, again, you see what I'm getting at? Benjamin Banneker could also say, thank God she acted. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? And there are many things, if more people can understand the actual stories, the truth. This is one of the reasons why these, these people are attacking critical race theory. It's so full of it. Because if their children would learn the truth, the truth is not a simple-minded story in black and white of good guys, bad guys, etc. The story is a story that could have Harriet Bailey and Molly Walsh in it. And if we learn the truth, you know, what these people are trying to do, they don't realize they're harming their children. They're claiming they're protecting their children by keeping them from critical race theory. Even that language is just... What they're trying to keep them from is the truth. And the reason they want to keep them from the truth is because who are these parents? Well, they're people my age and younger. Mm-hmm. Well, people my age and younger uh, live through witnessing also some of the most recent terrible efforts to turn the clock back on freedom and justice in this country. Now, it seems to me, rather than hide that fact from their children, if they say, you know what, I was on the wrong side of history, I'm going to be on the right side of history by defending your access to the truth, the truth, then by their demonstration, you know what they would show their children? They will show their children something even more powerful 
than what critical race theory has to offer. They would show their children their capacity to change. Mm. Their children will eventually learn the truth if they go to college and so forth. And at that point, they're going to come home and say, yo, mom, your dad, what's up? Mm-hmm. Why, why haven't you, you're right? Is it that you really believe people can change? Because if that's what you've taught me, then people who say I'm, I'm racist because I'm white would be right. Mm-hmm. But if you have shown me that you can change, then I could say, yeah, I'm white, but I'm committed to changing the world. And let my actions count. And who I am would be the new story of what it means to be a person born of people designated white. That's a more powerful story if to teach our children. Teach our children by our actions. But could you imagine some of the people of my age who, who are white, who look back at their parents in Boston throwing stones and glass at Black children being bused into Boston schools, mm-hmm. or those people who are older than me who look at knowing that there was their, that was their mother and father who were trying to stop little Black girls from going into, you know, Little Rock, Arkansas. Right, right. That, you know, however, if that were your parents, and your parents said, I was wrong. I'm, I'm now taking a different position. And I think I would like you to work with you to build a better world. Mm-hmm. That's a better way, thing to, way to be a parent. And if that were my parent, I'd be so proud of my parents' ability to grow and change. Right, yeah. and, I could t- and I could add to this. Look, yo, I mean, it's not that Black people don't have ignorant, <laughs> messed up parents either. Mm-hmm. But there are many of us, when we do find that our great-grandparents or grandparents or parents came out to say, I was on the wrong side of an issue, and I'm ready to join right now on the right side, all of us are just so damn proud of them. Oh, yeah. I love that so yeah, much. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that's, that's also an act of radical love in, in a way? I mean, it's definitely not. Absolutely. A, yeah. No, you got it right on the point. Yeah, that's are, the kind of thing that transcends that that programming, right? I mean, if you could acknowledge that your your parents were racist, right? Uh, that th- their actions were wrong. That you want to acknowledge the past and move forward and help bring about change. Why wouldn't you support people learning about critical race theory and how things were done before? It it should be about progress, right? I, I wouldn't understand. I mean, I guess I could understand you. You don't want uh, your kids to know that your their grandparents were racist and they did the wrong things. But uh, what's the alternative? The, let history repeat itself in another way. You know, if they don't know about their past, uh, I don't know. And by the way, Alan, I just want to add on to that because I think this is going to kind of roll into one of the final Please, questions yeah. that we ask Lewis. So I want to really touch on your sort of existential themes, right? Because I feel like a lot of what I like about your work are the existential, the implicit sort of existential ideas. And then so when you think about what it is that we are and who we are, right, you argue actually against human nature. So this idea yeah. of like critical race theory saying that all white people are racist or sort of they're defining human nature in any sort of way is completely absurd, right? That's not, that's not what critical race theory is. 
So can you speak a little bit about sort of, um, well, existentialism broadly, but just the idea that essentially that there is no human nature, right? When we're sort of criticizing people and things that they've done, we're criticizing ideals and sort of ideologies and actions. We're not criticizing human nature specifically. We're not saying white people are bad or whomever is anything, right? We're not sort of making these global assessments and uh, essentially implying that uh, there's a sort of a, there's a sort of past that's predicting or will inevitably predict the future. No, no, no. It's a bit more of a blank slate than that. Indeed. Uh, the existential insight, right, is that, first of all, human beings are not things. The moment we exist, and the word exist from existera means to stand out. The moment we stand out, it means we're other than the submergence of a complete being. And so even though we say the word human being, the thing that people have to understand, it doesn't mean human thing. It means the word to be in the present, in, in the active participle, the present participle of being. So it means human acting. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And in fact, in many societies, uh, in many other languages, the word, the word for human is an active word, right? It's what a human, it, 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 it means you do human things. Uh, so, so embedded in the notion of human is the ongoing practice of becoming a person, okay? Mm -hmm. It's personhood. Now, the thing about it is that a lot of people don't understand the concept of nature in the, um, in the, in the physicalist or um, what we call scientific sense. Okay, uh, but the, the short version of that is that uh, to talk about something's nature is to talk about the law, the laws by which it is governed. Mm -hmm. So if you're a zoologist, you can talk about a crocodile's nature. If you're a botanist, you could talk about a plant's nature. You put these conditions, it will do that. Mm -hmm. But a wonderful exercise I love to do with uh, my students is um, I, I, I say, you know, imagine you, you all got... There was a, a, a plane crash. You managed to survive, but you're in a desert and you find your way to an oasis and there's water, but you know, there's water, but there's no food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, a plane that was, on this, was passing by didn't see you, but uh, for some bizarre reason was doing an experiment and, and parachuted down a pig. <laughs> and the pig lands in the, in the, in the water. What are, what are you going to do? And it's an interesting moment because, of course, what students begin to realize is they cannot with certainty say that that group of human beings will descend upon the pig, rip it apart, and eat it. Yeah, some may be vegans. Some may be vegans. Some may be Jews. Some may be Muslims. And even if they were Jews or Muslims or Hindus, right, some of the Orthodox Jews, mind you, might jump on and eat that pig. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and it turns out some of the vegans might eat the pig. And it may turn out that some of the people who say, no, I love, I love a good barbecue. I'll do it. That person may love a barbecue so long as somebody else butchers the pig. Mm -hmm. right. But to witness the pig being butchered, that person can't eat it. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm getting. In other words, we begin to realize we honestly cannot predict exactly what will happen. But if there were a group of crocodiles surrounding that, uh, that oasis, that pig is gone. Mm -hmm. And if the crocodiles don't eat it, 
the response is, what's wrong with the crocodile? Is it sick? Is it so? That's nature argument. So the main thing about nature is not only possibility, right? The, the fact that human beings' existence, not having a nature means we have possibility. But it also means in relation to ourselves. So for instance, again, what we discover is what we think we are is often changing according to the actions we conduct in the situations we're in. You know, every, everybody who has been a soldier will tell you this. In training, people are like, yeah, when I'm on the field, I'm going to be the biggest, the baddest, the blah, blah, blah. Suddenly, you're thrown into, into war. Heads are being shot off, arms, so forth. And the, the person who was the biggest, you know, baddest in training freezes stops, urinates in his pants, can't do <laughs> yeah. anything. Yeah. And suddenly the person who was the biggest coward who was saying, I'm a coward. I'm only here because I couldn't, I couldn't get a job. I don't know why I volunteered for this. Suddenly <laughs> that person is throwing the big brave dude onto the ground, is doing it. And suddenly, suddenly this person who said, all my life, I'm a coward. Suddenly, why am I getting the purple heart? <laughs> why, <laughs> yeah. why, why are people celebrating in my town as a war hero? I'm a coward. Yeah, right. So that's the irony of existence, right? But 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 the, the thing about, yeah, the, the thing that, not just critical race theory, but actually critical theory of any kind mm -hmm. reminds us is that human beings live in a world of constructed meaning. We make the world we live in. Now, this doesn't mean that anything goes when we, because we're making it together. And that shared making, that shared making creates things like evidence. Mm -hmm. They create things like accountability. They create relationships that enable us to say, what are we doing? And that constructing, so to speak, and that's the mistake some people make. People think that if things are constructed, they're fake, they're fiction. Mm -hmm. But no, no, no. You see, what critical race theory is doing and all critical theory that's related to what existentialism does, existentialism reminds us of the human involvement in human activity. You see, the bad faith tries to erase the human from human activity. And we see this also in bad science. Bad science wants objectivity to mean the absence of human participation. Mm -hmm. But that is completely incoherent. It's, mm -hmm. it's not what goes on. What objectivity is, is the intelligibility of reality when human beings are participating in trying to understand it. So the objective is what you can share with another human being that a human being will be capable of understanding, you see? Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons why, for instance, unfortunately, so many young people have such difficult... Science is beautiful. I love science. I mean, I work with scientists. I do work with... I work with a group of people who do work in quantum physics. We do work on multidimensional theory, cosmology, wow. et cetera. I love science, and then, and, but here's the thing. What I notice is the commodification of science has led to a lot of scientists being fronters. And so what I mean by that is, if what the scientist's concern is, is to look like a scientist, then the scientist 
alienate science from the student. Mm-hmm. And I've seen many students who are great scientists if they, had, if they were introduced to science in the creative, beautiful way it is. Mm-hmm. So if you alienate science by treating it like this is fixed nature and only certain people can understand it. So if you look at many science classes, for instance, the big lectures, they're just trying to find ways to weed people out by demoralizing them. Mm-hmm. But if they make it exciting and loving and fun, then you can actually be able to see that what science is doing is making evidence evidential. And Peter Cause, uh, one of my, my favorite uh, philosophers, he's now passed. Uh, I love this man, his, his ideas. He had an elegant, beautiful way of saying it. Science is imagination constrained by evidence. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? Mm-hmm. Awesome. <laughs> and, yeah. And so and if you could bring that to young people to say, let us look for evidence. How do you make evidence appear? If it's got to be something you could share with others. And paradoxically, even when you're by yourself, you posit yourself as another human being and say, is, does this make sense to communicate? Mm-hmm. And that is back to that critique I was given, giving of the problematic Enlightenment thinkers. There were other Enlightenment thinkers who were not problematic in that way because they went to learn from everybody, sharing the ideas. You know, you think of Paine as an example, Thomas Paine, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, but not only him. I mean, you know, there, 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 there were, you know, if we think of, of, of um, people like um, Roxanne, uh, I think her name was Rothschild, uh, mm-hmm. or Burton, but there were, I, I have to think back, but there were, there were so many others. If we think of Wilhelm Amo, he was part of the Enlightenment, and Wilhelm Amo was from the continent of Africa. He was from, he was Fanti from Ghana. He was, he was enslaved, brought as a blackamoor, ended up in London, then ended up in Germany in the 18th century. He uh, became a medical doctor. He studied law, and he studied philosophy. He, he wrote a treatise transforming a critique of Cartesianism, he wrote a book on law defending the rights of the Moors in Europe. He meant blacks. Okay. Mm-hmm. He also wrote a book on logic. And uh, he eventually, uh, he, he was adopted as, and, and was, he was freed as a child as, by the Duke in the Netherlands, one of the Dukes in the Netherlands. And, uh, but as racism began to really shift, I mean, to the point where the problem with a person like Amo is he challenges the nature argument that it was that black people in our nature lacked the capacity to do science. And there became an increased need for belief in a kind of nature that would be locked in only certain kinds of people. He, began, he became lampooned uh, in, um, you know, in, the, in, in um, Halle where he was teaching uh, he, uh, Kant began to write very racist attacks on him, and uh, Amo eventually left what would be today Germany and made it back to Ghana, believe it or not, mm-hmm. wow. <laughs> found his birth family, mm-hmm. and he died as a physician in a Dutch fort in Ghana. Mm-hmm. But, but my point is that there were many people who were aware that the kind of nature racist type of arguments were false. And among them, some of the people who argued against that stuff was Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Mm-hmm. 
You know, because Rousseau, uh, one of the reasons Rousseau's attacked in Anglo-liberal, uh, often um, conservative thought, is because Rousseau was critical of Locke and Hobbes mm -hmm. because they reduced the human being into like atomic parts mm -hmm. with natures. Rousseau actually argued that human beings were fundamentally social and that we produce things like property and other mechanisms that create inequalities. And that ultimately, Rousseau, if you look at the nuance of his argument, and this is connects to this point about nature, he made a distinction between liberty and freedom. It's just in the French language, you use the same word, mm -hmm. but in English, you can see the difference. Mm -hmm. Liberty is the absence of constraints. So if something's not blocking you, you had liberty to move. Mm -hmm. But freedom is something different. Freedom is what you do with your liberty. Freedom is the responsibility you bring to it. Freedom is, depends on a world of meaning. And I usually put it this way. To be free, we bring into the world a, a way of being at home in the world, a kind of belonging. And in that belonging, we take responsibility for how we live. So this is why, for instance, when Frederick Douglass escaped, he had liberty, but he didn't have freedom. Mm -hmm. That political struggle he got engaged in, that effort to eradicate enslavement, all of those things, that's about freedom. In other words, it's to build a world in which he can belong and which everybody could belong with dignity and respect. And freedom, in that sense, is connected to more than a physical place. It's freedom is also manifested in ideas, in our disciplines. When you find that you love sociology or chemistry or um, you love literature, that is also an expression of freedom because you find a place in which you're at home with that way of learning and thinking and you're valued. But freedom is also connected to that radical love I talked about mm -hmm. because freedom is not about blocking people's capacity to grow. It's about being so released from your own ego, which can be, if you're full of yourself, your ego you treat as your nature, when you're the one who's actually constructing it. If you let go of being full of yourself, you are now open to relate to the world in a way that is actually an expression of freedom. And so, from an existential argument, and Simone de Beauvoir argued this, Frantz Fanon argued this, that ultimately existence and freedom meet, and freedom is also intimately linked with the freedom of others. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, love that. I love that so much, wow. Lewis, man, this was such an epic journey. So, so oh. great. Yeah. It's wonderful talking with you all. Yeah, absolutely, Me man. Too. So Alan, Alan, any final questions for Lewis before we wrap up, man? Oh, yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where could we find you? Well, what's type, just Google Lewis, L-E-W-I-S, mm -hmm. and then middle initial R and Gordon, and you'll find loads of stuff for me. I seem to be the most, I pop up the most <laughs> as the Lewis Gordon on the uh, internet. But if one would like to just look, look up at the University of Connecticut Philosophy Department, 
and you could easily find me. And then there, there is, there's a page on there that could easily, easily lead to things about me because it'll show all the sites, how to find me on Twitter. At Twitter, I'm at Lou Gord, L-E-W-G-O-R-D, at Lou Gord, right? Twitter at Lou Gord. And uh, there are many websites with me on them. Uh, Macmillan has a, a page for me for the Macmillan Speakers Bureau. Mm-hmm. So they could just look Lewis Gordon there. But the easiest thing is just put Lewis Gordon, L-E-W-I-S Gordon, and just put philosopher in Google. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll pop up and just see what grooves you. Just see yeah. what you like. Right? <laughs> awesome. I love that. Lewis, thank you so much for coming thank on. Man. So this much. was really great. Thank you for inviting me. And, uh, you know, as Aristotle would say, you know, let's make it a habit. Oh, <laughs> I I love that, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. We'll, t- we'll talk to you soon, man. Okay, take, take care. care. Take care. Right. And to everybody, just to listeners, continue being safe, healthy, uh, find, uh, you know, have love. And despite the difficult times, find joy. It'll remind you of your humanity. You have a right for joy despite the suffering. Take care, everybody. Love that. Love that. Take love care. That. Okay. Wow. Wow. First of all, where did the time go? <laughs> I'm not, I, did an hour actually, more than an yeah, hour Yeah, more, more than an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, again, uh, check out the book. It's called uh, Fear of Black Consciousness. Uh, and you can find it on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Nobles, wherever you get your uh, book, wherever your book distributor is. Yep. And you can always follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on uh, Instagram. And at mm-hmm. Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe. Hit the bell. (laughs) And guys, thank you so much for watching.